Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Mukherjee, the host of New Books in Law. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Joshua Fershay about his new book, Energy Law, a Context and Practice Casebook. Professor Fershay teaches at West Virginia University College of Law. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself where you were born, where you went to school, and how you became attracted to energy law and corporate law issues. Sure. Um, I grew up in Michigan, was uh, born and raised there, Um, went to college in a few places around the country and graduated from Michigan State University and then went to work in Washington, D.C. for an industry trade association for the video game industry, moved uh, and did public relations with a PR agency in Los Angeles uh, working for Nintendo. Uh, and then decided to go to law school at Tulane University in New Orleans. Um, while I was there, I really enjoyed uh, just about everything about law school and ended up going to New York to practice in uh, uh, corporate litigation, securities, and, and then did an M&A rotation, mergers and acquisitions, and um, decided that wasn't really for me and moved to D.C. Uh, to work with a firm doing uh, energy regulatory work, which which I loved. Um, I'd known that I wanted to... Uh, go back and and become a law professor if I had the opportunity. And and once I'd gotten into the energy practice area, I knew kind of where my focus would be. Um, And so I I really loved the the corporate governance in that style, uh, that part of the business law, which is why I ended up doing my initial practice work. And and I still enjoy that. Uh, And then connecting those things with the energy law areas uh, after my practice and uh, regulatory work really connected the two and and helped me figure out what it was that I wanted to teach and research uh, as I do now. That's great. Um, would you mind providing us with a brief history and definition of energy law? Sure. Energy law is, is actually kind of hard to define. And one of the things that I think my book helps uh, show is that it's actually an amalgam of a variety of different areas. Um, unlike kind of the core courses that we, we take in, in property, which is, uh, you know, pretty clear what it is uh, on the, uh, for the main part. And then it's the edges that are blurred. And, and energy law is kind of the other way around. Um, because every part of the practice of what we do is, uh, it, it can be property law, it can be contract law, it can be regulatory and administrative law, um, and, and a variety of other areas. Um, but really the history of energy law, I think, is the modern energy law. I mean, historically it was uh, going back a long way. It was really about water rights and uh, property rights, uh, who had access to uh, the you know, timber, uh, for firewood, water for mills, and that kind of thing. And it really evolved into the kind of modern energy law. It became more of a regulatory structure um, with the advent of electricity, with uh, Samuel Insall and Commonwealth Edison in Chicago. Uh, Insall had been an advisor and, and assistant to Thomas Edison uh, and began really this process. And I'd say, you know, kind of the late 1800s, early 1900s, we really start seeing a model of energy law that's based on regulatory structure, at least uh, that the electricity side that was modeled between a deal between Samuel Insall and state regulators of creating really the model that we have today, which is a 
a regulated utility that recognizes at least certain levels of natural monopoly. Um, kind of parallel to that, you had a, a, an advent of oil and gas law that was really, again, very property-based. Uh, and so those things kind of rose together, and, and we've seen those blur more and more as natural gas and uh, other fossil fuels were used to um, power uh, electricity generation. You really saw a merger of those two areas, so it became a very property kind of slash regulatory structure um, with a lot of other things thrown in. Okay, thank you for that. Could you spend some time now explaining the goals and structure of your new case book? Yeah, so my casebook is part of the Context and Practice series um, with Carolina Academic Press, and the, and the whole series is designed to kind of uh, shift the model of what traditional law school books uh, look like in the sense that um, beyond just kind of the case method, uh, it's really looking at putting things in context for students in the way that they would see them in practice before maybe they've had a lot of experience in working with clients. And so the structure of the book is really designed to say, uh, first, here's an introduction to vocabulary, key things that you need. And I can't think of a place, uh, energy law is one, one of the major areas where vocabulary is a big part of it. Uh, and so that's a big part of what we do in the structure. Each chapter starts with that. Uh, the other thing I have in the book is uh, most of the chapters begin with a client issue that say, here's a client problem. Uh, so the materials that you're going to read after this will be broader than just what applies to the client problem. But think about this client problem or these issues in context. So as you read, this is how you see things. And that's how we do things in practice, right? We get a client, somebody comes to us and says we have a problem. If we know the area, we might know right where to look. If it's an area that's, that we're less familiar with, we might start with a treatise or a law review article before we start jumping into cases. And so the book tries to do that in a number of areas. Uh, and one of the things I've tried to do is vary the um, the materials that I use. So there are certainly a number of cases, but I also have... Uh, a, sample, a complaint uh, for a, a derivative lawsuit in the business section. I have uh, in the appendices, I have the forms for West Virginia oil and gas drilling so that students see exactly what actually happens when you try to put something together. Um, I have law review articles. I have materials from public utility commissions at the state and at the state level, um, things from the Environmental Protection Agency, things from um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and really trying to vary the sources and where would we look, and even some things pulling definitions from, for example, the EPA website, because that's most likely where we'd go, and it gives me a chance to talk about how do we do the research to find the issues that we need. I put them in the book, but where would you find them? What would it, Where would you start in this? And, and so it kind of frames the question of uh, not just what do we do, but how do we find the information so we can do what it is we do as lawyers. Uh, how does your textbook help make students more practice ready in all aspects of the law, especially energy. You sort of just went into that, but maybe you want to expand on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that, you know, in the, you know, I gave you kind of the general idea and I think you know, more specifically, one of the things that it does is I've structured it so that we're really asking them questions about why does this matter? Um, what is it that you've seen? I'm able to talk about them, you know, when we go through the complaint and say, why isn't there any law here? A lot of students haven't seen the complaint and recognize that, uh, you don't have to have a, a large body of law to, uh, make a colorable claim to get things started, for example. So we get to talk about that. Why was something included or why was something not included? And I think one of the, the big issues there is, um, I, I try to create opportunities to ask them, what would you have done differently? You know, if you look at a case, um, what would you say, you know, what questions don't you have answered here? What, what else would you like to know? Uh, if there's something that seems important that's not in there, let's think about why it might not be in there. Why didn't they cover that? Um, 
And so really trying to talk about uh, and using those opportunities to talk about how, uh, for example, you prepare clients for trial, you prepare them for what it is they're going to see, you prepare them for the risk of, uh, of a loss, right, of recognizing that even if we seem to have everything going in our way, uh, understanding that some of the cases that we look at seem kind of absurd on their face. Well, that means the lawyers probably saw it that way, too. Um, and so things don't always fall as, as we want them to. And I think that's another important part of practice. The other part I try to do is, is connect them to some of the ideas. And, and that's really uh, what I think is a little different is looking at the transactional side of things. Of You know, when we look at cases, we're really, even if we're talking about uh, a corporate law issue, when we're talking about litigation, it's all in the litigation posture. And so we talk about drafting. How could we have done this differently? We have a dispute over a deed. Um, what would we have done differently? And, and try to reconstruct that and say, would that have kept us out of here? Is there any way to do that so that we can talk about, you know, how the danger of specificity, as nice as it, as it is, um, for example, sometimes if we get more specifically by necessity, exclude something that we may have intended to include because we didn't list it. And so... We talk about those differences, too, and I think it tries to give a little bit more flavor of what it's like to to work with live clients and think about their practical needs uh, as well as the, the theoretical things that we need to cover. Great. Um, what ways does your book highlight some ethical dilemmas that lawyers may face while practicing energy law? One of the things that I really try to do in each chapter um, and some chapters that may not have as much and others that it's more heavy, but um, I try to add in some questions that really connect to what are the ethical dilemmas here. So, for example, we read a case about a, a dispute over um, uh, a coal deed, and one of the questions that I ask afterwards uh, is, what if you find out that a, another lawyer uh, comes to you and says, hey, I pulled one over on client A, Here's how I did it, and here's how I got them to believe that this was going to be okay. What are your obligations? How do we deal with that? And, and put them in situations that force them to think about how they want to be as professionals. How do you want to be as a lawyer? What are your professional obligations? Right? Do you have to report them? What is it that you need to know? And what are the, the practical pressures uh, that you have in, uh, in challenging these things? Uh, I'm actually teaching my energy law course has uh, some LLM students, Some one of whom the students has, has 50 years of practice experience. And so his response to those questions are very different than the traditional second year student. Um, but it allows both of them to think about where it fits and, and how we talk about it. And so I've tried to plant things throughout the book that uh, force that, that question. Who is it that you want to be? Who are you serving? Who is your client, for example? What is uh, What are your obligations to uh, the various parties you're talking to? And how do you make clear uh, who it is you mean to represent. And so by putting those things throughout the book, it tries to integrate the ethical component uh, in the way that, again, we encounter it in practice, right? We rarely um, see a professional responsibility issue coming at us, and once in a while we do. Um, but oftentimes it's thrust upon us, and so we have to do it, and it seems like it's out of left field. And so sometimes the question um, will be connected to what, what we've been doing, um, but it's a little bit different. And so I, I think that it tries to put it in context and, and raise those questions for, for students so that they think about them now. And if you've at least thought about it a little bit of how you're going to deal with it in the classroom, it will not be any easier to make the decisions, but maybe you'll be less surprised about it and you'll be better prepared for it. And that's the goal. Okay. Uh, could you um, 
elaborate a little bit upon why it's so important to have a strong understanding in basic energy concepts and terminology? Well, I can, I can absolutely tell you that from my experience in my first three months of practice in the energy sector was almost like being a one L again in the sense that uh, it was, again, a, an entirely new language and learning that things mean uh, very specific things. Uh, and sometimes words that are very specific um, in one context can be more general in another. And, and I use, for example, um, generally when we talk about moving electricity, we talk about transmission. And, and the gas industry, when we talk about moving natural gas, we talk about transportation. Uh, however, when you read cases from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, transmission and transportation are flip-flop. And so it's important to understand that if you want to be clear, there's one way to do it. But you also have to recognize that these words are interchangeable in certain contexts. Uh, beyond that, there really is a lot of spe specific language. Uh, and we see that in the oil and gas industry. We see it in the electricity and utility sector. Uh, we see it in coal mining and, and coal regulation. Um, and so, and then even being able to track the terminology of who the various regulators are and, and what departments and who you're dealing with. And so one of the keys that I've, I've tried to getting comfortable with practice you know, and one of the driving forces behind my book was, what do I wish I knew the day that I walked into an energy practice without a whole lot of energy experience? And try to make sure that every student that comes through, that uses my book, comes through my class, is at least a couple weeks ahead of where I was, if not more. Um, because there is so much to try and learn. If you can be comfortable with the language, you at least have a better place to start. And and so I think it's probably true of a lot of specific areas. I think kind of intellectual property, for example, might be similar in that way uh, in some other areas. But certainly in this uh, energy and the environmental sector, getting some comfort level with uh, who's in charge and, and why and, and what it is that puts us into, you know, understanding the language in part can, can tell us where we are. Uh, in terms of jurisdiction. Is this a state regulatory issue? Is this a federal issue? Um, once you get that vocabulary down, you're, you're, you know a lot more about the situation before you um, than, would seem, than it would seem initially. I can definitely relate to that in my experience working in energy law. Would you mind now telling us some of the topics you cover in your casebook? Yeah, I really try to cover it. It's, the book is designed for an energy law survey, so it covers a broad range of things. I do an introduction to energy law, which is um, gives a basic history of, of kind of the regulatory structure and where things came. And then we talk about administrative law because I think you don't have a basic understanding of kind of the administrative structure and, and Chevron deference and those concepts. It's hard to get a real sense of of what energy law is like. Um, and then property and contract law is kind of an introduction to other areas that we're going to cover. Uh, I talk about the business of energy law, which really is an introduction to labor and employment law uh, and corporate law, um, basic understanding of business structures, the differences between corporations and partnerships, master limited partnerships, and maybe LLCs. Um, and then move to uh, minerals and mineral rights, uh, looking at coal, oil, and gas. Um, Electricity uh, and the resources that go into that. Uh, one of the things that's a little different about my book is the structure in that I do it um, by area as opposed to uh, by fuel. A lot of the traditional structures where we talk about coal, we talk about nuclear power, we talk about uh, natural gas, uh, and talk about them, the, all the things that relate to those. 
uh, for me, when we look at minerals and mineral rights, for example, coal, oil, and gas have very similar similar leasing histories and how we deal with things. Um, when we look at electricity-related resources, we talk about uh, the basics of electricity generation resources, and that's where we talk about coal and renewables and hydropower and nuclear, etc. There, and then move to economic regulation and market structure, where we talk about the basic overviews of of the industry and then move on into uh, looking at what's unique to electricity, what's unique to natural gas um, in that structure. Um, from there, I go to a energy and environmental regulatory policy. Uh, you know, we have a separate environmental law course. Most law schools do. Uh, and so I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I also don't want to ignore it because energy law and environmental law are very closely linked. Uh, and just as important, uh, I'm of the mind that if you don't link the two, you're missing out. In my practice experience, we, I was in the energy group and we had a group working environmental law group and we rarely over, uh, overlap. And, uh, although we in the energy group, of course, thought we had it better figured out because we did some environmental work. Um, whereas the environmental group did zero energy work. And, and I think the, the, those kind of silos that we saw in the fund practice uh, show a practical reality, right? That there's a reason to structure it that way because that's how clients were looking for it. But unfortunately, I think it also shows us how we look at energy policy on a broader base. And when we look at the legislature, for example, of how we talk about these things, we talk about energy on one side and environmental law on the other side. And both are so uh, inextricably intertwined um, not to include environmental law and regulatory uh, issues uh, in an energy law course would be missing out. And, and I think that, that from a law school perspective, um, I think other books do that too. I, I think there's a recognition of, of that on the on this side, but I think that's a critical point. Um, then we talk about climate change uh, law and policy, adaptation and mitigation, um, the issues that are, are put forth, and, and really talking about what does it mean when we talk about, well, we need to address the climate. Well, how would one do that? What does it have to do uh, with different issues. How is it, um, how important is it relative to other things? That is, how do we analyze the costs and risks and, and make sure that we're addressing things, um, in a way that are economically viable? Um, and, and really talking about, um, the cost of not acting, right? What, what are the costs of, of the status quo? Because, uh, oftentimes that's what's missed. That we'll, if we put this much money into a problem, uh, what are we going to get out? And, and one of the things we talk about is, well, what if we don't put the money into it? Uh, are we just pushing that down the road? I think the answer, of course, is yes. Um, but it's important, I think, to have that dialogue and discussion about priorities and, and how we can think about all of these things. And where does it fit in the greater uh, policy scheme? How does it fit in with everything else? Um, and then finally, ending with the transportation sector, which I think is is not off, as often talked about in uh, energy law uh, as maybe it could be. In part because, you know, we talk about all the, what we think about the, the fuels, for example, are talked about in other parts of the book, but we don't talk about what it means to until this section about how do we, if we wanted to switch fuels from gasoline to electricity or hydrogen or to, to some other uh, issue, how would we do that? What does it mean? What are the challenges and impediments to that? Um, how do gas prices fluctuate? How, how do uh, gasoline prices, that is? Um, and, and how can we do things in a better way? And, and then also really introducing uh, students to the different areas that it come into play when we talk about transportation. You know, we talk about the Department of Transportation. We talk about uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and 
areas that you don't necessarily think of as integral to energy policy, but where we build roads and how we build them influence uh, things that are going to follow for years to come. Uh, would you mind going into um, a little bit more of the substance in some of those areas, maybe a little teaser for your book, um, and starting with uh, the business of energy law? Sure. Um, I also teach business organizations, and I spend a lot of time, I, I write for the business law professor's blog, and that's something that um, is really integral to um, how I think about how businesses interact. And so I, I think it's important that students understand how businesses generally operate. We talk about them in the energy context and these energy company examples. Um, but of recognizing the various sizes of companies. Uh, and so one of the things that we talk about um, are basic business organizations and employment law, uh, how small companies become big companies, and we use as examples companies like uh, Chesapeake Energy, which started with uh, Aubrey McClendon and grew into uh, a huge multinational corporation from um, you know an oil and gas business that uh, really a couple of people started. And so we talk about uh, how those businesses develop the challenges of moving from a small-sized business into a large publicly traded corporations, the pressures and challenges that go along with that, uh, and lawsuits that can follow from things that don't go as, as planned. So we talk about that. We have an employment agreement for uh, uh, a company called Sandridge Energy, which did a modification to their employment agreement with uh, their CEO, um, and look at that and really talk about what the changes were. Why did they do them? They relaxed uh, the CEO's ability to be able to invest in potentially competing uh, markets and talk about whether that's permissible, why they would do it, uh, and even where you find this information. And, and the client issue for that chapter is, is uh, an investor is concerned about uh, potential conflicts of interest with her um, one of her companies in her portfolio. And, and so we talk about how would you find that? Where would you look for these executive compensation agreements, for example? And talk about the SEC documents. And the book actually has uh, shows them a couple things that, that I think put practice context uh, together, which is a, a red line of, of putting the two documents together. So it shows students one way of looking and comparing it's how, how a document's been changed and then talking about the substantive changes uh, and what those are. So we can talk about drafting and some of those other areas. Um, of course, talk a little bit about antitrust law. The history of antitrust law is, is rooted in, in the energy sector, right? Standard Oil. Um, talk about mergers and acquisitions and basic fiduciary duties because I think those are important to be able to advise clients. I, I've had a number of students over the years go and work with small landowners, small businesses, small oil and gas companies, uh, and even large oil and gas companies and recognizing uh, and being able to advise uh, the people they work with on their obligations to shareholders or or other members of the LLCs, for example. And so we try to talk about a broad range of, of what that looks like uh, and, and give them that introduction. So it's, it's kind of uh, business organizations and, and executive compensation in uh, two or three days. And so it's, it's a lot of information, but at least they'll have seen it, and, and I think that's important. Could you talk a little about economic regulation and market structures? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really hard for students to get their arms around is who's in charge of electricity regulation. We get used to electricity showing up at our house or at our place of employment, and we don't necessarily know where it comes from. Um, we often know who, who we pay our bills to, right, and we have that understood. Um, but really trying to get a basic understanding of, you know, that's the distribution level, right, of, of the people who serve 
uh, the localities and, and actually deliver uh, energy to end users. But then talking about as you go back um, upstream to where's the power coming from, how did it get there, what are those, you know, the difference between big transmission lines and small transmission lines, uh, who sets the price, if at all, who, who approves prices or pricing policy. Um, and so it's a really, uh, I think, good introduction to the uh, kind of cooperative nature of, of state regulation at the distribution and end user level, um, the federal regulation of the, the wholesale uh, rates and transmission, uh, and then the, the murky policies that come from the Federal Power Act versus the Natural Gas Act, or, you know, we'll talk about the concepts behind the Federal Power Act, which uh, gives the Federal Energy Regulatory uh, Commission um the power to regulate wholesale transactions and wholesale transmission, um, but doesn't give them the power, uh, at least in most instances, to actually decide where the transmission lines will go. That's a state-level issue. And really getting to understand kind of where the jurisdiction lies uh, is, I think, a critical part of understanding energy regulation. And, and then, of course, the, the basic concepts of a rate case. Uh, how do, how do, uh, you know, what is the traditional model for how we, uh, develop rates and charge rates for users? Uh, how has that evolved over time? Um, and really understanding the difference between, uh, regulation and deregulation, uh, or I should say reduced regulation and deregulation in that, um, in most instances, we don't talk about deregulated industries. We talk about at least in the energy sector, we've reduced energy regulation, for example, in, uh, in power generation areas uh, and that kind of thing. But um, but it's hardly unregulated. And so there's a misnomer of deregulated implies that it's just a market-based system where everybody does what they want. And that's almost never the case in the energy sector, particularly with regard to electricity and natural gas delivery. Okay. Uh now, you started talking about this a little bit, but could you go into more detail about the relationship between energy law uh, and environmental law and also the connections between that and climate change law and policy? Sure. Um, one of the big things that, that I try to make clear is that climate change law is a subset of environmental law, but it is not environmental law. That is, environmental law covers a lot of other issues and and one of the challenges is getting to understand kind of where energy environmental law and climate law intersect. For example, uh, we talk about renewable portfolio standards and mandates that we have uh, certain amounts of, of power from renewable sources like wind and solar. Uh, those mandates are not inherently uh, designed to deal with climate change or even the environment. They're really about energy. This is t- We're telling people where their energy has to come from. Those can have climate impacts. That is, wind and solar tend to be better uh, for the climate than other fossil fuel sources, for example. Uh, and there's a, a range of, of impacts there. Um, but one of the things is, is understanding things like nuclear power, which is uh, almost, uh, other than the construction process, uh, almost completely uh, greenhouse gas emission, you know, zero greenhouse gas emission. Uh, yet a lot of environmentalists don't care for nuclear power. So they're saying that there's other environmental concerns, contamination from waste, uh, other, other risks that come along with nuclear power that are more important to them than the client's climate change saving part of nuclear power. And so that's really one of the things that we need to talk about is, is where do these things fit? I think that they're all intertwined and need to be connected. Um, 
And so we try to talk about the basics of, um, you know, environmental law. What does it cover? What is the scope? And, and as a general matter, you know, we talk about clean water and we talk about clean air. Um, and in, in climate law, what is it designed to do? Is it to reduce, you know, to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? And how might we do that? Well, how we might do that is inherently an energy issue. Um, and so they all, it's kind of a circular process, but, uh, sometimes it switches back into kind of a, a balancing test of, uh, how important is climate to you, for example, um, when we talk about it relative to other options. And so nuclear power provides a great example on that front. Uh, and so it really is uh, something that all of the areas are closely inter- intertwined in my energy law survey course. Of course, energy law is the starting point. Um, but if we don't delve into those other areas, we're going to be missing big parts of it. And, and one of the things we talk about is, is how can you develop a good energy policy if you're ignoring the environmental impacts or the potential climate impacts of your decisions? If you ignore them, uh, those policies are not going to be very long-lasting, which means it won't be a very good policy. Um, could you talk a little bit about the unique nature of the transportation sector? Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the things that is so unique about the transportation sector is how dominated it is by one fuel source. As a general matter, we're dominated by gasoline as our transportation fuel source. Uh, one of the things we talk about, for example, is uh, any uh, non-plug-in hybrid, so the traditional Prius or Honda Insight or other uh, hybrid vehicles are still gas-powered vehicles. They're not electric vehicles. The electric they run on some electricity, but all that electricity is generated through gasoline. Um, and so we have this this sector of the industry, unlike electricity generation, where we see uh, a pretty diverse. We see you know, traditional coal plants, lignite coal plants, hydropower, wind power, solar power, nuclear power, natural gas, uh, a lot of variety in our fuel sources, maybe not as much as we'd like, but compared to uh, the number of, of vehicles that are on the road, we're almost exclusively running on gasoline or diesel fuel. And so that's unique in given and how impactful it is in our energy policy and our decision making, because there aren't any ready alternatives. Ethanol uh, can be used in a lot of vehicles, but we can't generate enough electricity to really make any of a, any kind of a dent of significance into what we do. Um, and so that really kind of brings us back to uh, some of the things that we look at and we haven't really talked about. But um, one of my research areas, I started at the University of North Dakota School of Law before I came to West Virginia University. Uh, and I've been working in uh, hydraulic fracturing and, and the big shale plays and and. North Dakota, the, the Bakken uh, play is almost exclusively oil. Uh, and when you're bringing oil out of the ground, uh, that is having a significant impact on where our oil comes from in this country. And how does that impact the transportation sector? Does it further entrench gasoline as our fuel? Uh, I think is a, is a good question, but I'm not sure that's what's entrenching it, although it may, you know, the, the opportunity to have uh, shale oil uh, certainly can extend the life of um oil as a primary transportation uh, resource. And so we really look at the, the wide variety of what's involved in that area and, and how much it impacts and drives some of our other energy policy areas um, because it is uh, so much more limited in its diversity, uh, though that is starting to change. Okay. Well, to conclude, I'd love to know where your work is heading next. 
Um, my next work uh, is kind of continuing what I, some of the projects I've been working on, which is uh, looking at the hydraulic fracturing regula- uh, revolution and how it's uh, impacting both the United States uh, and its energy production of, of both oil and gas and, and the role it can play in the world. Um, my main focus right now has been looking at the, the overlap between the economic, environmental, and social impacts of what happens when we have these new energy booms and, and how are they different uh, than some of our prior ones? What is, what is the potential? Uh, what are the opportunities? What are the risks and what are the challenges? Um, because I, I think there's um, even a potential geopolitical uh, shift when you know, the United States and Russia are the two largest oil and gas producers in the world. Um, what happens if um, Poland and Australia and uh, the United Kingdom can start making some significant inroads into their oil and gas reserves. Does that change the dynamic? What does that mean for environmental and climate policy? And, and where is this going to take us next? Um, and so that's, that's I think, where I'm headed next with, with my next projects. That sounds like a fantastic project. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. It was nice speaking with you. 